0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. and around the world as the legacies of colonialism and racism predictably play themselves out between white and black in the U.S., Israeli and Palestinian in the Middle East, and the global North and global South more broadly. Clips today are from Counterspin... On the Media, The Rachel Maddow Show, Democracy Now!, Citations Needed, and Start Making
1: Sentence. When you see phrases in stories like the administration of vaccines has met with delays and roadblocks. Um, that passive voice is safe, but the opposite of that isn't necessarily finger pointing, another word we're seeing a lot. It's just trying to understand where the breakdowns or flaws in the system are so they can be addressed. I, I think it's understood that this process was going to present challenges, as we say, but what would you identify as the the primary factors that have made it more confusing, more chaotic than it needed to be?
2: Sure. I always say this is not rocket science. It's complicated logistics, but not even that complicated. I mean, the basic problem is a lack of central strategy. You can argue that a lot of different kinds of algorithms should dictate who gets the vaccine. And instead of deciding nationally with the best experts how we want to do it, Basically, the feds have sent it to the states the states decide how they want to allocate it to the counties. The counties decide how they want to allocate it to hospitals and likewise to nursing homes and c b s and it's just predictable chaos without a central plan which people can trust and the newest wrinkle in this today, which i'm I have smoke coming out of my ears for is all these governors and mayors have announced that, okay, starting this week, January 11th, folks over 75 or over 65 will be able to sign up for the vaccine. Well, good luck with that. You know, I compare it to trying to get a delivery from Whole Foods during the beginning of the pandemic. You know, you have to be tech savvy, sitting there when the slots are released You know, refreshing your web browser, that is a crazy way to do a vaccine program. And I think one thing that would have made this whole thing better was a central kind of strategy where everyone knew where they stood. And if someone says to me, okay, you're going to get your vaccine in April, I can be okay with that because I can at least know exactly when and where it's coming rather than this current turmoil where we have literally, these are the stories we are hearing at Kaiser Health News today, where I'm currently editor-in-chief, a doctor's office will get a call from a hospital saying, hey, we have six extra doses. Send your staff over here. Or there'll be an announcement at a giant supermarket saying, hey, we've got four extra doses. Come one, come all. You hear of one nursing home getting everyone vaccinated and another one 10 miles away, which is presumably not as well connected or in a different county that's doing things differently, having no idea when they're getting vaccine. So that introduces chaos, it introduces anger, and we just have to be slow and plotting and systematic about the way we do this in a rapid way. So
1: how's that for a challenge? Well, and particularly at a time where public trust is obviously going to be paramount. You know, you have to trust that there is a plan. But, you know, first I wanted to say it can be hard for some people to see the unfairness in that first come, first served. You know, it it sounds like it's equitable. Of course, it's not at all equitable, both in terms of as you say, having to be tech savvy enough to get in line on the, you know, on the on the website or sign up and then know when you're supposed to show up to someplace. But also, of course, a lot of folks, we're talking about undocumented workers, we're talking about homeless people, a lot of the folks who should be getting vaccinated, they're just left out entirely. There's no incentive in that sense to, to reach them, particularly if the federal government is going to be Counting how quickly you can say you're vaccinating folks.
2: Yes, and I think we know there's more vaccine skepticism generally in those populations, which makes it even more troubling. I mean, you you really have to, um, boy, you have to be good at playing the game of accessing healthcare in the U.S. As you said, you need to be tech savvy. So, what does that mean? It means maybe 80-year-olds are not as good as the 65-year-olds, or an 85-year-old who has a 30-year-old grandson who can snag an appointment is in much better shape. I mean, so you're kind of favoring, you know, the well-educated, well-connected, well-hooked up to the internet. And then, P.S., we've seen in some states like New York where you officially get an appointment, but it's not really timed, so there are these long lines. So many people, particularly low-income people, have to work, so they need an appointment time if you want this to go smoothly, or good weekend
1: and evening times.
2: There are ways to do this well, and other countries are
1: doing so, but we are not. Well, but you say you, central plan. What are you, some kind of communist? You know, um, you <laughs> no, know, not at all. Your book is about the businessification of healthcare. I, I, I wonder what role you see that playing, in, in all of this, in terms of the development of the vaccines and their distribution.
2: Well, no, I'm, I'm certainly not a communist, um, and uh, or, or a socialist. But being a capitalist doesn't mean you don't plan. It should mean the opposite, right? But instead of planning, having a government plan, we've let every company, uh, and I, I will call hospitals companies for the purpose of this interview, and doctor's office, go it on their own, and nursing homes. So, for example, what did many hospitals in New York do? There was a great New York Times article about this. They gave it to their entire staff, including people who'd been working from home For the last eight months. Now, that's what a company would do. You would protect your own before you protected your vulnerable patients. A hospital that really cared about its community would say, yes, we want these frontline workers who have COVID exposure to be vaccinated. But then next we're going to look to our vulnerable cancer patients who may be in here every week for chemotherapy or our vulnerable people with bad lung disease. And we did not see that happening at many, many hospitals.
1: Do you think part of the problem, or I guess maybe I think part of the problem was kind of the setup? A vaccine was presented as the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, for a scientifically underinformed, you know, and to some degree, politicized public. You know, it, it was going to be something that would put an end to arguments about what we needed to do societally, since we could do this thing individually or not. Yes. You know, um, in a way, public health as a thing, kind of like democracy, it seems is is being tested.
2: Yes, we have uh, chosen the most profitable form of ending the pandemic, which is a vaccine. And, you know, the fact that we've gotten vaccines at record pace, I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. And that was one way to solve the problem. But why can these other countries be more methodical and systematic? It's partly because they have central planning, but it's partly because COVID never got out of control there. So we are desperate for a solution. This is the only solution, given how out of control we've let this become as a result of not being good at public health. And so there's a a kind of feeding frenzy for how to distribute it and who should get it and survival of the fittest in a way, and that's not very good.
3: letter, Insight, on Substack. You quote David Leonhardt of the New York Times, who says, a version of the mask story is repeating itself. This time, he said, it involves the vaccines. Once more, the experts don't seem to trust the public to hear the full truth. What is the truth that we're not hearing?
4: What he's trying to get at is the framing around the vaccines. We have hit unexpected, amazing home runs with these vaccines. The first two that have been authorized in the United States, the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna, you don't get any COVID at all for 95% of the people. And for the rest of the 5% in both the Moderna trial and the Pfizer trial, there's about 60,000 people total. Out of that 60,000 total, There was a single
3: severe case among someone who was vaccinated. Even among the 5% for whom it wasn't, quote, effective, their cases were mild except for a single case. One case qualified as severe, and
4: her clinical description was that her oxygen saturation got down to 93%. But she didn't need any other medical attention. She didn't need to be hospitalized. And that's the only case... Now, contrast that with the messages full of, well, we don't yet know if they prevent transmission or you can't take your masks off yet or you can't do this and you can't do that. Those things aren't completely false, but they have to be framed correctly. We do think it's going to blunt transmission. We just don't have an exact number yet. In the preliminary study, Moderna found that even asymptomatic infection was down by two thirds. So that's really strongly suggesting that it's going to, on transmission somewhat publicly will probably be wearing masks for a while because in public you don't want to create two classes of people and you also don't know like who's vaccinated. But of all the things to emphasize right now, we have vaccines that are better than anything we had hoped for, basically almost complete elimination of severe disease. So instead of celebrating this, because Life is going to get back to normal when enough of us are vaccinated. It's full of headlines warning people about all the short-term limits. And a lot of anti-vaxxers have latched onto this saying, if the vaccines are so good, why are there so many articles warning you nothing's going to change? People are tired and fatigued, and when we didn't get our mask messaging right, we damaged compliance and masking. And when we don't communicate the real upsides of the vaccines, when we don't get our messaging right, we do damage to trust.
3: Now come the COVID variants, and let's start with the ones first encountered in the UK and South Africa. I mean, we should be worried about a more infectious strain. They are 50 to 70 percent, maybe, more transmissible. We were also told, though, at the same time that they were not more deadly, but it seems that if you have more cases, it means more deaths. And I recently heard on the BBC that these strains may, in fact, be more deadly. But you've taken issue with the worries that the media are now choosing to spotlight, right? Right. I started
4: seeing the data and I thought, oops, we got adaptive evolution here. Question number one is, what do I do in the short term? Do you have to up your precautions? Because if it's transmitting 50% more than it used to, it means that the environment that you got away with last time, you're 50% less likely to get away with. We also have seasonality working against us, right? These coronaviruses are usually seasonal. This one appears to be so. So we have, you know, the winter dry air. Well, what about the vaccine? Moderna came out with a study, which was really encouraging, which showed that while both variants, UK one, a less so, and the South African one is a little more dangerous, they were lowering the neutralizing antibodies, But neutralizing antibodies are but one part of the immune system, and they were so high to begin with, they were clearing the bar. So what we were hearing was that, you know what,
3: it's going to work. So when you objected to the San Francisco Chronicle writing, Moderna's coronavirus vaccine protected against the mutations of the virus first detected in Britain and South Africa, but the antibodies were six times less effective at neutralizing the South African variant. It made it sound like it was- uh, Six times less effective.
4: They gave you the very wrong impression. The thing that went down sixfold is the neutralizing antibodies that doesn't really translate into vaccine efficacy. I mean, I realize this is kind of getting in the technical weeds of immunology, but if you're writing a headline, That's what you should know. If you just put the six-fold decrease in the headline, you're going to freak people out because people are going to think, wait, like, did we go from, you know, 90% to 30%?
3: So how effective is it?
4: Most people think it might go from, say, 95% to, say, 90%. Nobody's expecting to go down to 30%. So the correct message is you and I should not be discussing neutralizing antibodies. It's not the public's area of expertise. And I'm just telling you what the scientists have told me. It will have a small effect. Plus, Moderna said they were working on a booster for the new variants. And a lot of people were saying, well, if they're working on a booster, that means this one doesn't work. Whereas they clearly said, you know, we're just kind of keeping an eye on this. So my sense from seeing that press release and the paper. They put the paper out too. I was like, this is great. And they're already working on the booster. That's exactly
3: what they should be doing. Some other framings you didn't like. Vaccines have been oversold as the pandemic exit strategy from the Financial Times and a tweet from NPR, which said Moderna finds COVID-19 vaccine less effective against variant. It's fine to say the efficacy will
4: take a marginal hit. And also to tell people the variant is a real threat. You're unvaccinated now if you're like most Americans. you got to be more careful. Let's be straight. Let's say the good stuff. Let's not give misleading information. Let's not put six-fold decrease in neutralizing antibodies in a headline as if that's something the public should be expected to understand. And that's going to make people not want to take the vaccine when they should jump at it The media has to examine how it switches. Like there's this hurting effect where they dismissed the pandemic risk. They dismissed masks. They did this for a long time. And then when it flipped, there's a lot of doomsaying now. I'm seeing articles saying vaccination's not gonna get us out of it. Yes, it will. The problem is we don't have enough.
0: Live on C-SPAN 2, the historic second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, watch complete coverage from this week's opening arguments to the Senate's vote to acquit or convict. Trump is charged with incitement of insurrection for his role in the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. He is the first ex-president to face an impeachment trial, so you should follow it all live and unfiltered on C-SPAN 2, online at c-span.org, or on the free c-span radio app
5: because of racial and economic disparities in this country white americans are just getting sick and dying less than americans of color are in this pandemic it's been like that since day one of the pandemic the the present fight the thing we ought to be able to stop even before it starts because we know to watch for it and we can see it take shape at the early days, is that we're seeing exactly the same inequities play out right now when it comes to access to the vaccine. We haven't been rolling out the vaccine for very long, right? But look at the disparities we've got already. It's something that's taken place just over a matter of weeks. Look at Pennsylvania. Eleven percent of the population in Pennsylvania is black. But black Pennsylvanians make up 3% of the people who've been vaccinated. Look at Louisiana. 32% of the population in Louisiana is African American, but they make up only 13% of the people who've been vaccinated. Delaware, where 22% of the population is black, the percentage of people in Delaware who got the vaccine is 6%. And... Yes, some vaccine hesitancy in communities of color may be partly to blame here, but beyond that, there really are very clear barriers for entry to getting a vaccine that really do disproportionately affect people of color. In most places to get the vaccine, you need to register online. Well, in order to do that, you need to be able to afford access to the internet. Can't afford Wi Fi, don't have a smartphone good luck getting the vaccine in those places. Other vaccine sites are drive through only. You show up in a car, roll down your window, roll up your sleeve. For that, you obviously need to own a car just to access a life-saving vaccine. More people of color have been getting sick. More people of color have been dying. And now, right now, fewer people of color are getting the vaccine. Vaccine inequity is a problem all over the country right this second. It is not a long-standing problem because we've only had this vaccine for a few weeks, but we are already making the same mistakes as a country that we did throughout the pandemic that got us to these terrible health and death disparities that we've seen over the course of the
1: past year.
6: depending on which survey you look at, between 50 and 70% of the public in general is willing to be vaccinated with one of these new COVID vaccines. But only 32% of Black
7: Americans. How did we get here? In my conversations in the community, I think there are three primary reasons why there's a lack of trust in the vaccines in the black community. First would be a history of clinical abuse. Now I think we can talk about things like the Tuskegee experiment and the mark that has left on the psyche of the African-American community. But we have to go beyond that because there's the lived experience of clinical abuse even in our own day and age. We can reference the studies about African-Americans being less likely to receive pain medication than whites and various other studies around health outcomes and the experiences of African-Americans in the healthcare system and so This is the the first reason. A second reason would be a mistrust of government. People see government involved in the inception and distribution of this vaccine. And as they see that, they also, again, reflect on their experience with the government. Many failed government systems in, uh, in our communities, communities that are underserved, communities that have, you know, poor education, high unemployment rates, high rates of gun violence. And so it looks as though government policy has failed this community. And so when they see the government involved in vaccine, there's right away a mistrust of the vaccine because there's mistrust of the government. And thirdly, I have heard people talk about a mistrust of corporate America. People understand that there are corporations that are developing vaccines. And so there's this sometimes notion that this vaccine is being pushed to make those who are rich, richer. Many people who don't have much, they're not so willing to put themselves in a position to receive a vaccine, ultimately to make somebody else rich. And so just in my anecdotal experience, these are the three primary perspectives that I do believe cloud people's trust of these vaccines. You're in Pittsburgh,
6: where there's yet another wrinkle that I believe, has manifested itself, and that is that the universities are also viewed with suspicion because they're the primary funders of gentrification, swallowing up whole neighborhoods. So you're asked to go to a university to get your vaccine, and
7: they're kind of already viewed with suspicion. There's no question about it. Uh, Universities, although, you know, very often they claim to be places of enlightenment, whenever we really look into how they really, you know, live their citizenship in our communities out, it's it's very often detrimental to those who really suffer the most among us. I think it's also compounded by the fact that there have been historically many researchers who have come into our communities who have conducted countless hours of research And the results of that research has served our community in absolutely no way. It's got to be a reckoning for our relationship with these universities. We can't just say these universities are going to help us you know, promote and disseminate the vaccine. We have to say, if these universities are going to embrace their obligation to serve the most vulnerable in this time of great need, we have to do so in the context of a reckoning that I think is part of a broader national reckoning, where we have to understand that there has been too much that's too unjust for too long. This vaccine gives us an opportunity to begin to have those conversations on a more serious level.
6: So what you've described, is, you know, what in a PowerPoint presentation they'd call headwinds. There are many obstacles to widespread acceptance of any of the COVID vaccines in the Black community. What are you doing and what are you proposing to cut through those wins?
7: The Vaccine Collaborative, there's weekly meetings essentially where community members and researchers are brought together to essentially strategize, plan and report out on the success of recent strategies implemented on the ground and when the vaccine trials were made available there was three percent minority participation and so we mobilized the community up deputies and set them out.
6: Now we're not just talking about apostles of mask wearing and social distancing. We are talking about where the rubber really meets the road. Vaccine experimentation you mobilize
7: people to actually sign up for clinical trials i've seen some of these community health deputies that themselves initially were not warm to the idea of vaccines in particular vaccine trials you know i've seen these community health deputies actually go out and engage folks and really you know ask them the question would you do this and if not why And one of the things that's been most remarkable to see, you know, I can think of one example where a community health deputy posed the question, why really would you not do that? The woman answered, well, you know, I haven't seen the results of any of this and I just don't trust it. You know, the response was, well, do you know this is phase three trials? I'm explaining that, you know, phase one trial is high risk, low benefit, but phase three trial is actually high benefit, low risk. If we could get you the results from phase one or phase two, Could that help alleviate some of your concern about this particular phase three trial? And you have to see the woman pause and say, you know, if you got me some of that information, I might consider it. And that's the kind of interaction that I've seen makes all of the difference on the street here in our community. After the first week, we went from 3% to 8% enrollment of minority participation. So that was the first indicator that we had that this method was actually much more effective than some of the other methods we had previously tried.
6: If you were the Sultan, what would you tell the people who are charged with the logistics of a vaccine rollout, particularly in predominantly black
7: communities? Yes, I I would tell those in charge of of distribution that we've got to find those places that are well-trusted places in the community that can become vaccine distribution sites. I know that there's challenges with that. I know in terms of refrigeration, there's probably other logistical challenges. In addition to that, these efforts should really be done in coordination with community members who are essentially opinion leaders who are deputized to become champions of the vaccine. These are some of the things that I think can greatly help vaccine distribution in these communities.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas Socks. They've been supporting us for years, and I've been enjoying their socks that whole time because they make the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. I mean, before Bombas came along, I thought, these socks are soft was about the highest form of praise a sock could earn Little did I know the innovations that Bombas had in mind. They're downright high-tech in their methods of delivering comfort. But that's not even the real selling point, because Bombas is a certified B Corp dedicated to giving back to the most vulnerable members of our society. For every pair of socks you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. And the generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 40 million pairs of socks, and counting, through their nationwide network of 3000 plus giving partners and the impact is more powerful than ever to those experiencing homelessness these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes a small comfort that's especially important right now give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com/best that's b o m b a s.com/best for 20% off your first purchase bombas.com/best Can
8: you explain what is happening? How has Israel become the country that has vaccinated more of its population than any country in the world, and yet Palestinians are
0: not getting vaccinated? Who's in charge of this program? Who should be?
9: Well, uh, thank you, Amy. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, Israel actually is violating international law because it is denying its responsibility as an occupying power. Israel managed to get 14 million vaccines for the the Israelis and those who hold Israeli IDs, uh, but gave nothing to Palestinians. So practically, they are vaccinating 8 million Israelis uh, and not vaccinating 5.3, 5.2 million Palestinians living in the occupied territories. More than that, this system of racial discrimination, which can be only compared, in my opinion, to apartheid system, is doing something horrible in the West Bank. 750,000 illegal settlers, as you said, are getting the vaccines now. 3.1 million Palestinians in the West Bank are getting nothing. More than that, in the Israeli presence, Israel ordered uh, the guards in the presence to get the vaccine, and uh, probably the Israeli criminal prisoners, but the Palestinian prisoners, 5,000 of them, are getting nothing. What can be more clear here than uh, that this, this confirms that this is really a system of racial discrimination? And uh, when they speak that the Palestinian Authority is responsible, this is totally misleading. First of all, the Palestinian Authority approached them asking at least for vaccines for us, the healthcare providers who are being infected around the clock, and Israel refused. The Palestinian Authority is in charge only of 38% of the West Bank, only. 62% of the West Bank is Area C, under full Israeli military control, and Israel is doing nothing for Palestinians there. More than that, if the Palestinian Authority tries to import a vaccine from outside, they will need Israeli permit. And Israel did not allow any permit yet for Palestinians. Israel controls the borders controls the import, controls the export. And the biggest disaster is in Gaza. Because in Gaza, you have uh, 2.1 million besieged by Israel, lacking health facilities, lacking equipment. And there, uh, they are not getting any vaccines. And uh, more than that, 70% of them are refugees displaced from their land in 1948. When you tell them, go and quarantine, I don't know how they can do that if you have 10 people living in two rooms. It's impossible. The problem is that the rate of infection today in the West Bank and Gaza is 36 percent, while in Israel it's 4.5 percent. Israelis are getting the vaccines, and Palestinians are getting nothing.
6: Well, Dr. uh, Barghouti, isn't isn't uh, (coughs) it— In the interest of Israel, from a public health perspective, uh, even uh, if they want to pursue this uh, this, uh, this continued antagonistic policy toward the Palestinians, to have the Palestinians vaccinated
9: to reach herd immunity in the uh, in the total area, you are absolutely right. In my opinion, Netanyahu and his government, this man is so racist. He only thinks of himself. He only thinks of his political future. He only thinks of escaping the criminal charges against him and being re-elected again. And all he does is to satisfy the Israeli right-wing voters. In, in reality, what his government is doing is actually hurting the Israelis as well. Because you cannot reach herd community if you have 8 million people vaccinated and 5.2 million people not vaccinated, especially that 130,000 workers will continue to go to Israel for work and will uh, interact with Israelis, of course. And there are 750,000 other Israelis, illegal settlers in the West Bank, will continue to commute and communicate with the 3.1 million unvaccinated Palestinians. So practically, this is a crime against Palestinians and a crime against the health of Israelis. It's It's a violation of the international law, but also... It's, in my opinion, uh, the worst crime against medical ethics, which says nobody should be discriminated against because of anything, which says do no harm and help people as much as you can as a health professional.
10: Dean Baker uh, wrote about this very thing in early December last year in the New York Times, along with public health activist Akal Prabhala and another economist, Arjun Jayadev, in an opinion piece headlined This Want vaccines fast? Suspend intellectual property rights. It argued, as I'm sure comes as no surprise, that that is the way to get the most vaccines available to the most people. And as they say, quote, otherwise there won't be enough shots to go around, even in rich countries, end quote. Now, this PR effort in the 80s and 90s to really push this idea of intellectual property really created this new trade regime that Pfizer, unsurprisingly, is now exploiting much as it was designed to deliberately undercut efforts to get cheaper vaccines to poor countries. So Pfizer, Moderna, pretty much the entire U.S. pharmaceutical industry is going all out, opposing a proposal currently put forward to the WTO by India and South Africa that they proposed back in October that would suspend enforcement of patents for COVID-related treatments. Seems pretty fucking obvious, but so far the European Union... Great Britain, Norway, Switzerland, Japan, Canada have successfully blocked this proposal. The proposal itself would allow for the expanded production of cheaper generic versions of the COVID vaccine, saving many thousands of lives. Obviously, the fact that this is not a given. This should have happened even before there were vaccines available, even before they were in process. Obviously, this work should be done with open source data, shared intellectual property, working across governments, across countries, across companies. That should happen. The fact that countries are not scrambling to share as much vaccine info as possible is appalling. And yet, remember, this is not the inevitable state of things. Intellectual property rights are a thing that were determined to matter by the people who would profit most from them.
11: For decades, many others have argued that IP law is inherently neocolonial and is a product of neocolonialism, if not just colonialism, plain and simple. A University of Glasgow School of Law, paper written in 2010 by Andreas Ramadian, said quote an essential instrument in the process of neocolonialization by economic means is the establishment of a legal framework of international trade which confers legal enforceable rights that support and safeguard economic penetration and control this includes as a prerequisite for the making of a quote informal empire unquote like in colonial times the creation of property rights and the guarantee and protection of foreign property rights in dependent regions However, unlike in the colonial era, the most important property rights which fulfill this role in the 21st century are intellectual property rights. This is because intellectual property rights do not attach to nations. How Western in nature trips effectively is can be shown by the fact that Western national legal systems have had to adopt little to trips. While, for example, Latin America and Caribbean states have had to make significant changes in their intellectual property laws to implement the minimum standards. More recently, TRIPS also served as a bottom line for further extension of IP protections, which the developed world continues to push for bilateral TRIPS plus agreements with countries of the developing world. And so here you have this fundamentally colonial, fundamentally racist setup here that every major, quote unquote, democracy in the global south, Brazil, India, South Africa – Pretty much every African country there is says, hey, this is super bad and racist. We should get rid of it. And it's just simply not part of the conversation. So there's now an effort, a grassroots effort to get Joe Biden, now that he's in the White House, to backtrack on Trump's approach to this, the uh, Western Europe, Japan, other colonial powers approach to IP or to sort of loosen the rules a little bit. And activist groups such as Doctors Without Borders, Progressives in Congress, the National Coalition for Black Civic Participation, Speak Up Africa, countless activist groups have been begging for new President Joe Biden and American leadership and American and people in Congress to rethink the obsession with and the defense of intellectual property rights and to make sure that we begin to put it in racial terms, because those are the terms in which it was created.
10: As we've said, these kinds of calls to loosen or eliminate these IP. Uh, law restrictions are not new. You saw something similar when the AIDS epidemic was ravaging South Africa and pharmaceutical companies were charging exorbitant amounts of money for the antiretroviral uh, treatments that could have been made locally in South Africa for a fraction of the price distributed for a fraction of the price. And yet they were prevented explicitly from doing so. Back in 1999, when Al Gore, then Vice President Al Gore, was uh, hitting the campaign trail for the 2000 presidential election, he actually faced protests because of his opposition to freeing up patents for HIV and AIDS treatment in South Africa.
11: This is an article from The Guardian from 1999 quote US pharmaceutical companies which hold the patents for many of the drugs challenged the law of South African courts which was a new law that reversed their patent protections quote on the grounds that it infringed on intellectual property rights They also called on Washington to fight for their interests. Mr. Gore, uh, at that point he was running for president, he was vice president, took a leading role in negotiations with President Thabo Mbeki. According to a State Department report last February, Gore played a key part in a, quote, insidious, concentrated campaign, unquote, to pressure the government of South Africa to change the law. The main drug manufacturer lobby, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, Pharma, is a contributor to the Gore campaign, and one of its lobbyists is Anthony Podesta, the brother of White House Chief of Staff John Podesta, a friend and advisor to Mr. Gore. And so he was met with protest on the campaign trail by ACT UP, the gay and AIDS activist group that now sort of lives in, in lore as a sort of product of courage, but they were fighting in solidarity with AIDS sufferers in Africa and South Africa. So the suffering of people in the global South from these conditions – Has always been inextricably linked to the defense of big pharma and the defense of intellectual property rights in the United States. And attempts to reform these systems have been very token and useless at best, as evidenced by the fact that in the year 2020 and 2021, these major countries like South Africa and India are having to go hat in hand to the WTO and beg America and Europe, European countries to stop defending these IP protections at the World Trade Organization. Now, one thing to note here is that. It's not even just about profiteering off the vaccine itself, because I think sometimes people assume that's the end game. That's actually, I think, a fairly small part of it. And I think if you talk to activists, they don't think that Pfizer is not going to be making a ton of money directly off the vaccine and Moderna are not going to be making a ton of money off the vaccine itself. What they don't want to do is create a precedent. They don't want to create what they view as being a slippery slope to situations where the maximizing of profit is somehow undermined. Mm-hmm. And so this is a scenario where we can be, people are beginning to see, man, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense that we would prevent other people from manufacturing and producing a drug that could benefit millions of people. And that's a very dangerous, slippery slope because so many of these people are obsessed with precedent and the general ideological framework around the protection of IP that they spent so many lobbying hours and money to set up in the mm-hmm. 90s. And you saw this with AIDS too. It's we can't do it because once we do that, we got to do this and they got to open up for malaria drugs, you got to, you know, for this, for cancer treatment. And that's just not acceptable to these people. And the sanctity of intellectual property as somehow sacrosanct, something that can't be undermined, is something that people just aren't willing to criticize.
3: Understand what the data has to do with monopoly ownership of the drug because the data refers to how it's worked out in the trials, not how it was made or what its components are or any of that.
12: Well, to my view, there's not a good argument for keeping the data secret, but most of the drug companies insist on that. And there's a very pernicious reason as to why they might want to keep it secret, and that's They may look to misrepresent the safety or effectiveness of their drugs. That's a big part of the story of the opioid crisis. You know, uh, Purdue Pharma, which was one, of course, the big opioid manufacturers, if from the first day this was selling as a generic, anyone could produce it, they wouldn't have a big incentive to go out and market it and tell doctors, oh, don't worry, it's not addictive. They, They wouldn't be doing that. My view is, why don't we just pay for the research up front? then you don't have that issue. And that's exactly what we did with Moderna. We paid for the research up front. We still gave them a patent monopoly, which makes zero sense. But if you pay for the research up front, then they don't have costs to cover. Currently, the government spends roughly $45 billion a year on biomedical research. If you look at what the industry spends, it's roughly $90 billion. So more or less twice that amount. Now, suppose we look to replace what the industry spends. We were spending, say, somewhere around $130, $140 billion a year on prescription drug research and development. Well, then we would have paid for the companies in advance to do the research. Once it was approved, it could be sold as a generic from the first day.
3: What these manufacturers become essentially are research companies. They stand to make far less money from the actual sale of the drug that they were paid to create.
12: And to my view, that's exactly what we want. I'm not looking to put any of these companies out of business. Pfizer, Merck, all the big companies presumably would want to stay in business. They've had years of experience doing research, so they would put in bids on these contracts. They're going to research cancer drugs. You know, In my view, if they're asking how to design the system, everything's open source. So as soon as you get a, a lab result, you put it up on the web so every everyone could see it.
3: Your scenario, which I really, I love. It's so socialist.
12: It's just a different type of capitalism. I'm not concerned that they could make as much profit as they do under the current system. I mean... Maybe they will. I frankly hope they don't.
3: You're talking about serving the public.
12: Yes, that, that that's our goal in designing the system. And we always have to remember, patent monopolies are a government policy. Because again, I don't know how many times I've argued with people and they go, oh, you want to interfere with the market? I'm sorry. A patent monopoly is from the government. So we're already interfering with the markets. We're deciding how best to do it.
3: The situation that we're in now wasn't inevitable. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, the WHO set up a uh, COVID-19 technology access pool to promote the sharing of knowledge. And there were early reports about how the pandemic is going to change, how the world does science, make it more collaborative.
12: There was a lot of cooperation early on that many scientists talked about. There were a lot of developments that were posted on the web. You had international cooperation, scientists in Europe, in China, in the United States. But then we quickly huddled down. You had the companies saying, okay, we're going to work on this. We're going to work on that. They wanted to get patent monopolies and have vaccines, treatments that would allow them to make lots of money. And what, in principle, we would want to see was collective sharing of knowledge And also open access to technology so that when these vaccines were being developed, anyone with the means to produce the vaccines would have been able to. We would have liked to have hundreds of millions of each of these vaccines available, maybe even billions, at the point where they were approved. Maybe we would have made 800 million, a billion doses of the Pfizer vaccine and it gets to December and turns out FDA looks at it and they say it's a no go. Well, That's unfortunate, but you go, okay, so the vaccines cost roughly $2 each to produce. Again, not an exact figure, but a ballpark number. So we threw $2 billion in the garbage. We've spent, the U.S. alone, somewhere in the order of $5 trillion now in, in COVID relief.
3: This past October, there was a proposal put forward by India and South Africa asking the WTO to exempt member countries from some forms of intellectual property enforcement, which would allow them to produce generic versions of COVID vaccines and treatments. And that was an immediate no-go. But aren't there global provisions for emergencies just like this? Yeah, this is a
12: fascinating question. So the TRIPS Accords, uh, trade-related aspect of international property, part of the WTO as of 1995, Those require all countries to adopt U.S.-style patent laws, but they have special permission during emergencies to override those patent laws. That special permission has very, very rarely been invoked. And the reason for that is the United States, and I suspect European countries as well, have basically threatened retaliation.
3: What kind of retaliation? Denying the drugs they're not giving them anyway?
12: Various forms of trade retaliation. This came up with South Africa in the 1990s. We threatened to put up tariffs because they were going to do that on a a drug that was used to treat AIDS patients. And this was, I think, 99. Bill Clinton was still president then. The U.S. threatened them with retaliation where we would uh, make it more difficult for them to export items to the U.S. Al Gore, of course, was running for president in in 2000. A number of AIDS activists went to his uh, speeches and they protested and Clinton backed down on it because it was hurting Gore. Gore didn't want to be associated with it. I forget whether they actually issued the compulsory license because, again, you get this this dance where countries threaten to issue compulsory licenses and then often to prevent that from actually happening – the company agrees to radically reduce the price. That that's happened several times.
3: I don't know if uh, Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson Johnson, if that one comes out, could even do the little jig of saying, "Oh no, we'll drop the prices," because they can't make enough. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of potential lost lives.
12: The the pharmaceutical industry is saying oh well they it's complicated technology they couldn't possibly produce it well first of all india brazil some of the other countries in the developing world they have very high-tech manufacturers so so they're not working with sticks and rocks india's generic manufacturers are as good as anyone in the world now do they have facilities up and running probably not they would have to retool them so what's the timeline we're talking about well i'm not an expert in the technology but what we do know is None of these vaccines existed back in March of last year, and they were able to produce hundreds of millions of doses by November. What that tells us is in eight months, we could have hundreds of millions of doses if we had new factories ready to produce the stuff and maybe quite a bit sooner. I mean, I'd love to say that, well, eight months would be too late. We'll already have the pandemic under control. But I don't think anyone really believes that. So if if we said, okay, today, you know, we're going to allow anyone in the world who has the ability to produce this to go ahead and start converting a factory, that would be a huge thing in terms of controlling the pandemic.
11: To me, the big – like from a messaging perspective or a PR perspective, the big bullshit factor in all this is that ever since the George Floyd – we talked about this at the beginning here. But the ever since the George Floyd protest in May and June of last year, everybody and their mother was talking about white supremacy. Wells Fargo was talking about white supremacy. Nike was talking about white supremacy. It sort of became trendy to kind of talk about this in an abstract term. And, you know, most of that's good. You know, those kinds of public conversations, even if corporations cynically exploit them, are, it's whatever, it's better than the other thing. And then you see this emerging vaccine apartheid happen at the same time. And then you see the New York Times say the poor countries won't get it till 2024. And the fine print oh, well, 27 of the 28 poorest countries are in Sub Saharan Africa. So basically, what we're talking about is a racial apartheid regime. You know, we can. We can speak in code and talk about poor and rich and developed and underdeveloped and all this kind of stuff. But basically, per usual, the legacy of colonialism, black and brown people are going to get fucked over and white people are going to be golden. In fact, I'm going to have nine vaccines for myself, right? Like, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and we act like this is the de jour or de facto. I think de jour, I think the WTO was largely set up under a racial regime from the beginning, mm. as I believe the post-World War II economic order was. We can get into that later. But it's shocking to me, even a cynical, jaded media critic, it's shocking to me how little we talk about this in racial terms, mm. how some dipshit on Twitter says something and it's the outrage of the day. And that's good. You know, I have no problem with that. But here we have an economic system that is going to kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people based on a racist system that is, again, either de jure or de facto. I think it's both. And no one seems to frame it as a racial issue. When the New York Times reports on it, it's ho-hum, hand ring. Mm poor people are going to die. And it's like, they're dying because they're black. And as a system, we don't give a shit about black people, whether they're in Africa or the United States. Why is that? Why do you think this is not framed in more starkly racial terms? I, I can't, I, to me, like the term vaccine apartheid, I think is completely the correct term because it is an apartheid regime. And from your work, is there something to be gained by more aggressively looking at this in a racial lens and putting this in the context of racial justice so we don't act like again, this is just some law of nature that we sort of you know, we can kinda hand wring about it, but there's nothing really we can do about it. Mm -hmm. What do you think the utility is of putting it in those terms?
13: Yeah, no, you know, the term vaccine apartheid actually was used by the South African delegation at the World Trade Organization in the meeting just before Christmas when they were discussing the proposal to suspend patents during the pandemic. He actually said that the current situation where we're seeing bilateral deals being done and rich countries ignoring global collaboration actually reinforces and vaccine apartheid enlarges chasms of inequity. So actually, when a South African says that, you really have to take notice. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. There is an unspoken undercurrent of what we're seeing is that lives across the global South matter a lot less than the lives of those in the rich North. And the lives of those in the global south, the Latinos, the Asians, the black people, they seem to matter a lot less. They mattered a lot less during the HIV crisis of the 1990s that we've talked about. They matter a lot less when we're talking about dealing with cancer, like, like I've mentioned, when we talk about hepatitis C, and for all the other access issues that we're seeing. But we're also seeing it for things like, you know, in global public health terms, there's actually a term called neglected diseases. And what that means is that these are conditions that affect people in the global south, but don't affect people in the in the rich north yeah, exactly, and in which we have zero investment to actually come up with treatments to save their lives and so i think the fact that we even have that category called neglected diseases i think is when i first heard it i was completely shocked i couldn't believe that we would value people's lives so little and that we wouldn't even bother to uh, work out how we can treat certain conditions so globally we have about four percent of newly approved drugs which are for conditions that affect only poorer countries and so i think that The system that we have in place is driven by this market logic that reinforces that racial prejudice. Because the pharmaceutical industry, the global pharmaceutical industry, it's not actually based on the human right to health. It's not based on every individual having the right to access medicines, which is a vital part of the idea around right to health. And instead we have a pharmaceutical system that's based on a financial logic, which says that whoever has the most power and has the most wealth get to live and so there's something really wrong in the system in itself like you said it's a racist model it's a it's an elitist model it's not a model that's about human rights it's a model essentially about extractive profits and so there's a real tension in that model and you know as uh Something that our organization has been doing the last few years is really pushing for alternatives and saying, actually, we need to transform this system. How can we even live with this system? For too long, we have sacrificed public health for mar- market logic and people are dying as a result of that. And there's just something so crazy. And I mean, for me, there's a real moral and solidarity argument to say why we need to have equity in our global health system and equity in access to medicines. But certainly for something like COVID, what we see is it's more than just being moral and having solidarity with our fellow brothers and sisters across the world, wherever they live. There's also actually a real public health argument here, because actually when it comes to things like COVID vaccines, if you leave large parts of the world without a vaccine, you're just allowing the virus to continue to spread and to transmit and to ultimately to mutate. So all these vaccines that we're hoarding in the rich countries, they're going to be rendered potentially ineffective when we're faced with different variants and mutations. And so it really underscores the saying that's been said quite a lot in um, WHO and even with political leaders who say no one is safe until everyone is safe. That's one of the things that I'm hoping that does come out of the COVID-19 crisis, you know, in that more than ever, we are all tied together. And actually, this is not about creating and sustaining a world where we have those who have and those who haven't, where we have those who can get vaccines and those who can't, actually doesn't really benefit anyone ultimately.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin explaining the troubled vaccine rollout. On the media discussed the messaging breakdowns plaguing our understanding of the vaccines. Rachel Maddow introduced the racial divide in our pandemic response. On the media discussed strategies to deal with vaccine skepticism in black communities. Democracy Now! discussed Israel's approach to vaccinating Israelis but not Palestinians. Citations needed in two parts explained the immorality of maintaining intellectual property rights for the vaccine manufacturers. And on the media spoke with Dean Baker about the same thing. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Start Making Sense, in which they discuss the tangled web of vaccine distribution ethics, and Democracy Now!, in which they speak of the coming moral catastrophe should the world fail to appropriately address vaccination needs in Africa. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content, which includes full conversations featuring myself, Amanda, and our research staff, Dion and Aaron, in freewheeling conversations that sort of give you a behind-the-scenes look at how the show gets made and, and the thinking behind it. All of that can be delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed when you sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com/slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds, a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, briefly, we'll hear from you.
8: Hi Jay, this is Christina. I would say that moral panic would be more like, there are millions of babies being killed every year by abortions, or, our society, God's kingdom on earth, needs to be pure so we need to discipline or expel the unclean, or, there are less and less good paying jobs for me every year, or, the other side keeps trying to take all my hard earned money away. None of these thoughts are hateful, and every time the left classifies these thoughts as hateful, they are attacking right morals. Christian morals. By the way, losing the government is also a moral panic. I do not remember who posited that the fight the two sides are having is a fight over framing, but they are correct. Aggravating this problem is, if it bleeds, it leads. I wish I had suggestions on how cable news could report people coming together without calling it a puff piece. I swear, loving your enemy is way harder than fighting them. Thank you, Jay.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So that quick comment on moral panic, just for context, is in response to another voicemail from just at sort of the end of January. And the idea was sort of speculation that is what we are seeing, is what the Republican Party is pursuing, equivalent to a moral panic, sort of similar to the way the War of the Worlds radio broadcast created a a panic. And I went and looked up sort of the definition or some context for that term and my ultimate conclusion was, I don't know, I'm don't, i don't, I'm not sure I have a good enough grasp on the concept of, of moral panic to comment on it, but I got some clarity when I, I think it was talking with our researchers, I think maybe Dion had responded to this idea and just put it in a frame that made it click into place for me, that moral panic can be one of many tools in the toolbox of a group of people pursuing their ends. And this message that we just heard, I think helped sort of solidify that for me, that moral panics over individual ideas, individual policy concepts or or whatever can be pursued in sort of these niche ways. But to refer to them as moral panics can still be you know relatively fitting. And absolutely, I think pursuing a line of falsehoods that leads people to believe that an election was stolen, something that is, you know very, very dramatically impactful on the nation, is absolutely in line with following the moral panic outline, encouraging people to believe that they have morals on their side, and to raise the stakes high enough that it incurs panic. So yeah, it it took a couple of rounds for that to sink in, but I'm I'm glad we finally got there. Secondly today, I wanted to make a point, uh, playing off of something that was said in the show, there was talk about intellectual property related to the vaccines and how the primary reason to oppose the total wiping away of intellectual property in the name of saving lives around the world is about creating a precedent that rang so true to me that if these companies could sort of pursue this idea and you know, or, or have it imposed on them that, look, we're going to strip you of your intellectual property rights. We're going to have the information you have spread to as many manufacturers as possible. We're going to create as much vaccine as possible all around the world. Simultaneously, if those drug companies thought this is going to be a one-time thing, yeah, they probably wouldn't fight it that much, to be honest. But It would set a bad precedent, they fear, and they would then think, what's to stop them from doing this again next time and chipping away at our profits, not just in this one-off case, but in an ongoing way. And what it made me think about was the fight happening between Google and Australia right now. If you're not familiar with the story, Australia has come up with what I think is a pretty interesting regulatory solution to the tension between local media, local journalism, and the internet and how it is very hard for local media outlets to survive in a globalized media environment, especially when it happens primarily online where the news and information is almost entirely free. So the idea that they've come up with is to have a fee built in for search engines That would go to local media outlets in Australia whenever someone clicks through from the Google search engine or whatever search engine to the Australian local news site so that the local news journalism gets a new source of revenue and the search engines, which are profiting off of the existence of that local media journalism because people are searching for it and they want to find it and Google gets to serve ads in those cases that they are profiting off of it, but pay nothing back to what is essentially the source of their profit, the content creators. So Australia came up with this idea. And to be honest, I haven't looked deeply into the nuances of the bill and the size of the fees to be charged, but What I am willing to bet is that the fees that Australia wants to charge, the taxes to be paid to these local media entities, does not exceed the profit that Google earns on each of those search queries, because that would be ridiculous. That wouldn't make any sense. So they, as regulators, would know we just need to charge a percentage of whatever earnings the search engines are are creating for themselves. But Google is responding by saying, if you put this law into practice, we will pull out of the country of Australia entirely. Now, is that because Google could not continue to make a profit by serving search queries in Australia under this new law? Absolutely not. There is no reason to think that that would be the case, and if it were by some strange occurrence the solution would be to ask to sort of renegotiate the fees or you know tweak it around the edge here or there but what they are doing is trying to avoid setting a precedent that is it they know that they could comply with this law and still be profitable and even and you know another one of their excuses or complaints is that it's complicated it would be too complicated well we could have a discussion about how to streamline it we live in the 21st century and we're dealing with some of the most technologically advanced companies in the world i bet we could figure it out but no they don't they don't want to figure it out they don't want to come to a compromise they are going to pull out of australia entirely because they know that we could figure it out they know that they could continue to be profitable by serving these uh, search queries, but having to pay something back to the local journalism that creates the content that the people are searching for, they just don't want to set a precedent that could spread worldwide and dramatically impact their profitability. Obviously, they would still be profitable, quite profitable, just not as profitable, and that's a precedent that they're not willing to set. So I just bring this up in the context of the vaccine rollout and the pharma companies to draw this parallel and point out that this is an incredibly important framing to keep with you any time you hear about disagreements between regulators and tech companies or big companies of any kind, when the arguments being made by the companies are along the lines of This would be too burdensome. This would hurt our profitability too much. Just keep in mind, it's probably not that they couldn't go along with it. They just don't want to give an inch lest the regulators realize that what would actually be good and just would be to take a mile. As always, I would love to hear from you on this or anything else you'd like to comment on. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, and so on and so on. And of course, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And now everyone can support the show and earn rewards like our super secret and highly coveted Best of Left artwork for your phone or tablet. By telling everyone you know about the show by using our referomatic system, check that out at bestofleft.com/slash refer.